We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12. I'm going to be reading verses 13 through 17. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we uh, show respect to God's Word and its reading. Just follow along either in your Bible or on the slides as I read this portion of God's Word. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy... He said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. You may be seated. Last week, uh, Robin kicked off our series on the church. We're going to be looking uh, at this topic throughout the fall, asking uh, questions like, who is the church? What is the church called to do and be? What does a healthy church look like? I hope you're going to find this series uh, an energizing one that brings clarity to what it is we're doing here on Sundays and throughout the week as a body of Christ. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, what does a passage about paying taxes have to do with the church? Well, the answer is everything. It has everything to do with the church, but not because it's about paying taxes. In this passage, Jesus offers us a groundbreaking perspective on two different kingdoms or spheres, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Now, those are two labels I'm going to use in referring to these two spheres that Jesus talks about here. Now, these two kingdoms have two God-ordained institutions that exist within those kingdoms. Now, within the kingdom of God, you have the church. And within the kingdom of man, you have the state. Now, by understanding the relationship between these two kingdoms, it will hopefully give us a clear understanding of our role and responsibilities as the church and our obligations as Christians to the state. If you've attended King's Church for any amount of time, you've noticed that we don't talk about politics very often. I don't talk about voting on specific people or issues. Stereotypically, more mainline liberal churches often align with the values of the Democratic Party. More conservative evangelical churches align with the values of the Republican Party. 
We are a conservative evangelical church, but we don't align with either party. Uh, We aren't a church that actively supports and engages in those parties, their candidates, or uh, particular agendas they may have. Now, we are intentional in this. I purposefully don't preach on these issues. I don't support specific candidates. I'm not going to tell you how to vote or what to vote for. And that position might frustrate you. It might bewilder you. Uh, But I hope by the end of the sermon, at least you'll understand why we hold that position, why I take that stance. It flows out of our understanding of these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of man, the role of the church, the role of the state. Now, we're told at the beginning of this passage that some of the Pharisees and the Herodians were sent to trap Jesus in his talk. Now, let me give you a little context to understand what's going on here. In the first century, Israel was an occupied territory. The Romans were in control. So when you paid taxes, you paid them to the Romans. So a faithful Israelite was confronted with a question. Should I give money to the Romans, thereby supporting an idolatrous, religiously debased state? where the emperor was worshipped as a god. It's a valid struggle. It's a valid thing to wrestle with. Now notice in our story, Jesus' response is to ask for a coin. I want to show you what that coin would have looked like. Here's what it would have looked like. It would have had an image of the Roman emperor, Tiberius Caesar, on one side. And then on the back, an image of his mother, Livia. And these words were printed around the coin that said, Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the divine Augustus. So put yourself in the the sandals of a faithful Israelite. (laughs) Uh, They were wrestling with this question, whether it was sinful to pay taxes using idolatrous money to support an idolatrous Roman government. And there were zealots at this time in the first century, revolutionary types who would have said, yes, this was idolatry. We shouldn't participate in this. We shouldn't support this. And in fact, in the first century, there were people that did that, Israelites who did that. Now, these religious leaders understood Jesus to be a revolutionary type of person. Earlier on in Mark, in chapter 11, Jesus upon coming into Jerusalem, entered into the temple and did a revolutionary act by cleansing the temple. He was inciting a revolution against the religious authorities. And so in their thinking, ah, this is a revolutionary type, we should be able to incite him to lead a revolution against the civil authorities. And so that's what they're intending to do by asking Jesus this question. You see, the crowds believed and hoped that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah who was going to come and lead Israel back into its glory to throw out the Roman oppressors. The Israelites longed to be free. They longed to return back 
to the good old days when they were a theocracy. Now, a theocracy is a nation where the institutions of religion and government are blended together. And that was Israel's past. You can see this image to give you an idea of what what we mean when we say Israel was a theocracy. There There was a blending of the two institutions. Now, you notice that Jesus does something surprising here. Jesus wasn't coming from a theocratic perspective in answering this question. Jesus didn't expect Israel to become a theocracy. Jesus doesn't say, this is a pagan, idolatrous empire, and yes, you should refuse to support it. No, Jesus separates the two kingdoms. Notice what he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. Here Jesus shows that indeed he was a revolutionary because no one else talked like this. Theologian D.A. Carson, when writing about this story, he makes the case that this was a unique moment in history that never before had a leader, a religious leader, no doubt, separate religion and the state in this way. They were always intertwined. Even in the Roman Empire, the two came together. Even even among uh, pagan nations, the two were blended together. The, The gods of the people were intertwined with the gods of the state. But here Jesus is separating them, differentiating them. And that's a significant moment in in, in history. Now I want to show you what this looks like. We have a slide and give you this idea of of how these two kind kind of move apart. He was offering this revolutionary perspective in the relationship between these two kingdoms. And he's teaching his followers here that they are citizens of both. And we have this image. I want you to see yourself as this individual. And you have citizenship in both kingdoms at the same time. And I want to be careful how I represent this. And I don't want you to to necessarily see these two as completely distinct. So I've got this image. Maybe we could see it as there's some blending, some overlap. And and this is where Christians disagree. This is where it takes wisdom and discernment. And this is where I do not have black and white principles that, that apply in every single situation. But there's some differentiation of the two. There might be some overlap in the two. But the point is that we as individuals can be citizens of both kingdoms. And so that's what Jesus is showing this. I want you to see this key point that they're not the same. Jesus is not trying to go back to a theocracy here. He has a different understanding from this point on of how history is going to move forward and how the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man are going to relate to one another. And we get into trouble when we try to overlap them. This is one of the main differences between Islam and Christianity. Philip Yancey told the story of a a Muslim friend of his who said this, when I read the Quran, I find nothing that tells me as a Muslim how to live as a minority. And when I read the New Testament, I find nothing that tells you as a Christian how to rule as the majority. Do you see his point? You see, Islam 
grows with state and religion intertwined. So Muslims struggle to see religion and politics as distinct spheres. And this blurred vision of the two kingdoms is a part of our history and tradition as a country, as, in, as Americans. But it goes back even farther. We, we see the two blurring and, and merging together way back in the fourth century when Emperor Constantine became a Christian. And, and, and at that point in time, the church, which was persecuted, was a minority, was frowned upon, all of a sudden was blended together with the state and the two became one. And ever since, we've been trying to figure out how do the two relate. And one of the interesting things in our, in our history as a country is when this country was founded, many Christians, for example, the Puritans, came here with this belief that America was very much like Israel. You see, they didn't perceive the two distinct kingdoms as much. They believed America had received a special, unique calling from God, that we were set apart for divine purposes, that we were a chosen people, that America was a new Israel, that we were entrusted with specific responsibilities, uh, that we were a righteous Christian commonwealth. And so the logical corollary... For Americans with that perspective was that God would therefore deal with our country the same way he, deal, he dealt with Israel. And that we would receive blessings and curses just like Israel received blessings and curses as if God had made some sort of covenant with America just like he had made with Israel. And we see that perspective is alive and well among some conservative evangelicals today. For example, those in the so-called religious right, if that still exists, uh, hold to this kind of perspective, believing that we need to take back America for Christ if we ever hope to receive God's divine favor. Again, there's this blurring of the two kingdoms, this view. That's the goal. That's what we need to do. We need to bring the two together. It flows out of this understanding of those kingdoms. But I would argue, again, that we need to hold them as distinct. We need to see what Jesus is showing us here in this passage, that there are two kingdoms, two spheres, two institutions, both ordained by God for different purposes. And you and I, as citizens of both, need to understand how we are to relate to both. So what are those purposes? Well, let's look quickly at the state. To look at the role of the state, I want to take us to Romans 13. Uh, let's look at this passage at the beginning of Romans 13, how uh, Paul describes God's role for the state. He says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities... Resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So what is Paul showing us here? Paul is showing us first that the state is a God-ordained institution. By separating the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, the church and the state, we are in no way saying that God is not Lord over all. God, God is God. He's God over all of His creation. And he has instituted the state for a specific purpose. So he is still God. And he is still in control. So God rules over the state in that sense. 
He's king over both kingdoms. But God has a different role for the church. So let's go on in what Paul tells us. He goes on. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So here Paul shows us the purpose of the state. The purpose of the state, one way we could describe it, is to uphold justice. To restrain mankind's sinful hearts. To provide a safe society that encourages human flourishing. That this is God's uh, purpose and role for the state. Now notice the language Paul uses, the sword the sword. That is a crucial part of the state's role is using force. The theologian R.C. Sproul defines government this way as legal force. And that, and that idea of the sword, that that is necessary and needed because this is a fallen world. We are sinful people and there must be some sort of legal force in order to provide an orderly society for us to live in, for the common good. Now, that doesn't mean, and nowhere are we told in the Bible, in the New Testament here, that the sword is to be used to force people into belief in God. That is not the state's role. That is not what God ordained the state to do. The state uses the sword to encourage good and to punish wrongdoing. Peter tells us that in the second chapter of his letter. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. You see the role of the state here explained by Peter. Now, here's the reality, right? The state is fallen as well. And the state doesn't always do what Paul and Peter are asking it to do here. So the reality is that sometimes there's, there's a state, there's a government that isn't fulfilling its calling. And so what do we do in those situations where that's where wisdom comes into play in understanding what to do? But what we can say is it does not need to be a Christian state in order for us to be obliged and obligated to obey it and submit to it. Remember what Jesus teaches here with paying the taxes. He takes this coin. It has an image of Tiberius on it. it it's an idolatrous image. And Jesus is saying, look, submit. Submit to this pagan government as a good citizen. For it is God's purpose for you. So he says that, that participating and submitting, it doesn't, the government itself does not have to be moral and upright. In fact, it won't be in many ways for you to support it. And there are many times we have to discern that. We have to figure out when to submit and when not to. And we see in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, sometimes we see the apostles not submitting because their ultimate allegiance was to God. And for the Christian, 
That's where our ultimate allegiance lies to God, our King. And yet we need that discernment to know when to disobey and when not to. And so we submit to the government out of love for Jesus, for what he has done for us. As a good citizen of the, of the kingdom of God, we're going to be a good citizen in the kingdom of man. You see how the two relate to one another and how they support one another. So that is the role of the, church, or the state. That's the God-ordained uh, purpose of the state, the kingdom of, of, of man uh, in that sense. So what about the church? And this is where hopefully we begin to get clarity on understanding who we are and what we should be about as God's people. What's the role of the church? Well, if the state wields the sword, what kind of power does the church wield? When the kingdom of God we see in the ministry of Jesus plays with a different playbook. We have different rules as citizens of the kingdom. And, and let me, on a side note, make an important point. I think that language of being citizens of the kingdom of God is significant and important because if you ever want to explain to somebody what it means to become a follower of Christ and to come to faith, if to use that language, I think, is helpful to dispel misunderstanding. Sometimes when we talk about coming to faith in Jesus, we think, well, just say the sinner's prayer, Come to faith, get saved, get your ticket to heaven, and then you're good. And go out and live your life the way you want to live it. But if you begin to understand the gospel, and you begin to understand what Jesus came to do, and if you understand that becoming a follower of Jesus is becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God, you begin to see, now wait a minute, there's, there's more involved here. I'm called to live as a citizen in the kingdom of God if I'm a follower of Christ. That means there are different rules and obligations on me. That means that's a part of what it means to follow Jesus. Now notice when Jesus began his ministry, what, is, what does he proclaim? What is the good news that he announces? In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus says this, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I want to suggest that the kingdom of heaven, most scholars and theologians will say, I want to suggest the kingdom of heaven here is just another way of Jesus saying the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is pronouncing with his coming the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the new, this new kingdom is entering in a new way and that you need to respond to it. And Jesus is announcing, repent, enter into it. Become a citizen of this kingdom. And his ministry was a display of what that kingdom looks like and how its citizens should live. It's interesting that after this pronouncement, you move into chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, and what is there but the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes up on the mountain and announces... The guidelines, obligations for the citizens of the kingdom of God. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. Jesus telling us, if, if you're going to be a part of this kingdom, this is how you should live. This is how you should be. Now, I want, I want to show you how understanding the two kingdoms is important for applying and understanding the Sermon on the Mount. For example, in Matthew 5, where Jesus says this, you probably have heard it before, 
You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, some Christians have understood this teaching to mean that they cannot participate in any activity that involves the sword, that involves retaliation, that involves force. Now, see, if you don't understand the separation of the two kingdoms, that makes a lot of sense. But if you understand that you're a citizen of the kingdom of God and you're a citizen of the kingdom of man, you begin to be able to understand the two and how they play together. For example, if you blur the two, as a Christian, you would say, well, if I'm going to follow Christ faithfully in this passage, put that back up there for a second. If, I'm, if I really am not supposed to resist and I'm, I'm just you know, not supposed to retaliate, then I can't participate in the military and I can't be a police officer and I can't do those types of activities because that would be unfaithful to what Jesus is calling me to as a citizen in his kingdom. But if you understand the distinction between the two, you begin to say, now wait a minute, perhaps as a follower of Christ in my day-to-day life, I'm a citizen of the kingdom in, in this sense and I can follow that, but in my role and participation and submission and obligation as a part of the state, maybe a police officer, maybe in the military, maybe in that sense, I'm participating in a God-ordained institution and I can do those types of activities. One theologian puts it this way. He says, living in the two kingdoms of church and state, he says, in their capacity as citizens of the spiritual kingdom of Christ, Christians insist upon nonviolence and the ways of peace, refusing to bear arms on behalf of his kingdom. In their capacity as citizens of the civil kingdom, they participate as necessary in the coercive work of the state, bearing arms on its behalf when occasion warrants. So you see, as a Christian, it's almost like two hats you can wear. Two different kingdoms, two different citizens participating in God-ordained institutions. And we see Jesus explaining and articulating the ultimate expression of these two kingdoms in his very sacrifice and giving his life for us. Notice the conversation he has with Pilate. When Pilate is determining what to do with Jesus, he doesn't know what to do with him. Pilate answers Jesus, your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done And Jesus answered Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. You see, Jesus here is telling us that the church fights with a different sword. The church fights with a different kind of power. The church fights in a different way. Ultimately, we fight as our king fought. I would argue that Jesus showed us where true power lies, and that's through sacrifice. That's through dying to self. 
That's through giving our lives away. Because when we think back to Jesus' teaching about paying taxes, what he says there when he talks about the image on the coin, he says, give, this image has Caesar, this has Caesar's image on it, give his coin to him, but give to God what is God's, and whose image is on you but God himself. You are made in the image of God. What that means is you are to give him your very life. Not mere taxes, but all that you are. Because Jesus himself gave all that he is for you. And so the power of the church is when we reflect our king, Messiah Jesus, and we die to self and we give our lives for his kingdom in how we love and how we serve and how we use the weapons that we have. They're not the sword. It's interesting, uh, Ed Clowning, though, makes the connection. You know, our sword is different as the church. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. And the truth of the gospel can accomplish what no sword can achieve, the turning of men's hearts to God. You see, the church has a different weapon. The church has a different playbook. The church enters into the fight in a different way. We reflect our king who died, who gave himself for us. And so we are to follow his lead. And so we proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the good news that God is seeking to reconcile with his creation and his people. That is our goal. That is our role. That is our obligation. And that is what we are called to do as the kingdom of God and as his people and as the church. And so we have this understanding and philosophy as a church. This is why we do the things that we do. This is really, here, here it boils down to this. We have to stay focused on the fact that our job as a church is to reflect kingdom values, the, kingdom of, the values of the kingdom of God, the values that Jesus gives to us. That is our main purpose. It's, it's not to enter into the fray of, of political issues and agendas and, and candidates. It's, it's to make sure that we as the people of God are reflecting the kingdom values that Jesus offers. And what are those values? It's being a community that is serving and giving to one another, providing for one another, forgiving one another. Where peace, people come into our community and they experience peace, forgiveness, all those qualities, love, joy, those qualities of the kingdom of God. They come here, they experience that, they see something different than they see out in the world. That is our responsibility. That is the God-ordained role He's given us as the church. And so we focus on that. And that's why I don't stand up here and tell you how to vote. And I don't tell you what issues to fight for. What I do do is I bring this and the principles of this book and do my best to clearly articulate those and allow you to figure out how does that apply? How does that call me to live as a citizen in the kingdom of man? Because honestly, I would argue that the application of these principles can be applied in both parties. I know I probably upset somebody there. 
And if you want to talk more about it, we're going to be having lunch <laughs> uh, at the Commons to flesh this out a little more. Uh, but that's why we do what we do. That's why we hold the positions. When, when I'm up here preaching, I understand my, I'm an officer of the church. It's not so much Jason Mather giving his opinion, but I am a representative of the church, of Jesus' kingdom, of my king, of our king. And I want to be careful to speak on his behalf and not according to Jason Mather's opinion. If you want my opinion on political issues and candidates and things like that, talk to me in another setting. I'll give you, I'll give you my opinion. But up here, I want to make sure I'm, you don't blur the lines when you hear from me and think, oh, he's just spewing his, his political opinions. No, I want you to hear God's word. I want you to hear from him. And I want to be careful in how I communicate that with you. And so this morning, I, I would like to spend just a few moments in prayer. I would ask that we would come together in this moment. We have a contentious election coming up. And, and I think all of us, it, it, it's a struggle to know how to feel about it and what to do. And so as God's people, as citizens in both kingdoms, I, I want to invite us to spend a few moments praying. Here's some things you can pray for. Pray for God to show you maybe ways that, that you can grow in your citizenship of the kingdom of God. Maybe there are ways that he's challenging you to participate in his kingdom in new, fresh ways that you've been unwilling to do. And in the same way, maybe spend some time asking God to examine your heart and to say, uh, God, are there ways that I am not participating in the kingdom of man in the state uh, in ways that I should be? Is there, is there something you want to show me in that regard? You can also pray for, for the political candidates that are coming up for election, whether local politics, national politics. Um, but I'm just going to give you a few moments, and then I'll, then I'll close you. The band can come up in a few moments, and they'll lead us uh, to the end of the service. So just spend some moments in, in reflection and prayer, asking God to examine you. Holy Spirit, move in the room. We do pray that our loyalty to you would surpass any political party. That our unity in you, Jesus, would be stronger than any unity we might hold in our views of the state. We see that we are brothers and sisters in you. And that our calling is ultimately to be obedient to you in all things. And I pray that out of that would flow commitment, sacrifice, obedience, not only to you, Lord, but 
to the state that you have given us, the government that you have given us, the leaders you have given us. And we do acknowledge that they are from you, that you've ordained them, that you've put them in place. And so we rest in that, even perhaps in an election where we feel frustration, we're scared maybe, or disappointed in our options but we acknowledge that you are in control. We acknowledge that you are God. You're still God. You're still on the throne, Jesus. And so we enter into this contentious, polarizing environment as your people, seeking to represent you, seeking to participate in a way that people would notice is different seeking to display your image in a way that brings you glory. I know for myself, I want to just ignore it and hide and uh, pretend like it's not even a, uh, something I have to worry about, but that is not the, my calling as a citizen of the kingdom of man, as a citizen of this country. And Forgive me, Jesus, for those times when I Shirk, shirk, uh, shirk that responsibility and and I'm lazy, Lord. I, I can be lazy at times. Forgive me for that. Bless our community, Lord Jesus. Bless this church so that we might be a countercultural light in a dark world where people connect support one another, love each other, and seek to serve others. May that begin to represent us, to be a quality that people notice about King's Church. Lord, you are in the name of our church. King's Church is a, is a name that's intended to remind us of who our King truly is and who our, where our loyalty ultimately lies. So may we not forget that. And so we pray for our country. Would you protect us? Would you bless us? Not because we are in any way special or unique, but simply because you are a merciful God, that you love all the nations, and that we are just one part of that. And so we plead for your favor We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.